from the Princeton Review. Note taking forces you to pay attention. <laughs> and it helps you focus in class. It helps you learn. Studies on learning have shown that actively engaging with the topic by listening and then summarizing what you hear helps you understand and remember the information later. So let me encourage you to take some notes. And you can leave your notebook here, just write your name on the top of it or leave it in the car or take it home and pray into it, whatever you want to do. But we want to get into the habit of a discipleship culture where we take notes on the Word of God, okay? We actually want, to, we want the Word of God to go in. Um, and if this can help, that can only be a good thing. All right, we are in the book of Isaiah. I think in the sermon slides, Brian, there might be a slide. There we go. Um, we are doing this Old Testament prophet who wrote mainly to the southern kingdom of Judah, 700 or so years before the coming of Jesus. We've been going pretty quick, um, but I think this series has already been deeply encouraging and challenging. Uh, there are words in the book of Isaiah about judgment on the people of God. But there is also these themes of remarkable hope and restoration that continue the whole way through the 66 books of Isaiah. And so the people of God are called to is to be like a vineyard planter that produces good fruit, to be a blessing, to be a light to the nations. And we saw last week that this, uh, this kind of restoration that's going to come happens through this mysterious child. Uh, in chapters 7 to 12, who will come at some stage in the future and begin to set the world to rights. So we are charging on today, and I think uh, this is going to be another great word from God about who we will trust for deliverance, and again, pictures of future hope of salvation. So if you're following along closely, you'll notice that we are skipping all the way, I'll just go back right, uh, we are skipping all the way from chapter 12 to 28 today. Chapters 13 to 27 mainly deals with judgment upon the nations around God's people. It's a rollicking good read. <laughs> there is some really great stuff in it, some amazing themes emerge. But if we went through every chapter, we would still be doing Isaiah this time next year. So, we're going to race ahead a little to chapters 28 to 35, and it challenges the people of God as to where they will put their hope and where deliverance will come from. Um, so you'll see that's where we are. We're almost halfway through the book uh, into today's sermon, but we are not halfway through this series. And chapter 35 tells us that when God moves to save... His glory will be on display for all nations, and it will bring healing and restoration. All right. Now, it's worth a reminder of where we're up to in the people of God's history. Remember, um, this, this family of Abrahams are originally called by God. He says, I'll make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I think it's remarkable to think that there's 2.3 billion Christians in the world. I'm not sure if Abraham could have ever imagined that when God made that promise to him that your family will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, that he would have any idea of that impact. But they're called to be a blessing and they will be blessed by God. So they've gone through slavery in Egypt. They've been delivered by God's mighty hand into the promised land. And they've found themselves in a covenant with God. Now a covenant is a little bit like what we do 
here yesterday at the wedding. We made vows that these couple kind of made to each other about faithfulness and uh, being there through thick and thin. And so each party kind of commits themselves to each other. So in the covenant that God's people found themselves in, they are to be obedient and choose God. And in doing so, God promises them that they will receive life and receive blessing. Um, But if they end up living just like all the other nations on earth around them that were into idolatry and human sacrifice and um, unfettered greed and violence, and if they just became like the other nations around them and turned their back on God, they will be devoured by the sword and destroyed. So this gets repeated regularly in their history documents. Uh, Like 2 Kings 17. Let me read 2 Kings 17. I think we've got a slide for that. It said, When the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites, he commanded them, Do not worship any other gods or bow down to them. Do not serve them or sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt with his mighty power and outstretched arm is the one you must worship. So as we come to Isaiah 28 to 35, Uh, Isaiah speaks into the approaching calamities uh, involving the threat of the Assyrian Empire um, because the Assyrians are wanting to invade the southern kingdom of Israel. Now, if you went to Sunday school, you'll remember that the Assyrians have already defeated the northern kingdom of Israel and taken them away into captivity. So remember there was 12 tribes, 10 tribes formed the northern kingdom of Israel. And then there are two tribes, Judah and I can't remember the other one, uh, who make up the southern kingdom of Israel. And that's where you find the city of Jerusalem. Alright, so you can read about it in 2 Kings 17. So the northern kingdom, having been defeated by the Assyrians, taken into exile, get this explanation. It says, all this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods. They followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them. So the Lord Lord warned Israel and Judah. That's the two kingdoms. North is called Israel. Southern kingdom is called Judah. Through all his prophets and seers. That's what Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel is all about. It's warnings to the nations about what's happening. Okay, So he warns them through the prophets. He says, turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey, that I delivered to you through my servant, the prophets. But they would not listen. And they were as stiff-necked as their ancestors, who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their ancestors and the statutes he had warned them to keep. Instead, they followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. Verse 18, so the Lord was very angry with Israel and he removed them from his presence and only the tribe of Judah was left. So, I mean, like God does say, if you do this, you will be removed from my presence. And they become like the other nations. They get involved in idolatry. And so they are wiped away. They are taken out by the Assyrian Empire. So now that the Assyrians have wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel, they're now threatening the southern kingdom. 
And that's where the prophet Isaiah basically writes into. Much of Isaiah is a warning to the southern kingdoms of Judah. Don't go the way of the northern kingdom. And Isaiah links this threat of invasion and exile to the people of God's relationship uh, to Yahweh, to their God. Okay? So there's a link between what's going to happen to them militarily with a link to how they have been faithful in the covenant that they have with their God. So we pick up the story today in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, the third king of Judah during Isaiah's prophetic ministry. Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. There's a good name. If you know, Who's about to have a baby? Sennacherib. That's a, that's a lovely... Just, I'll, I'll just put that one out there to you. Sennacherib. Beautiful name. Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, seeks to come against Judah. And the question becomes, what is Judah going to do? Are they going to surrender to the Assyrians? Are they going to put their trust in an alliance that is offered to them with Egypt, who are to the south of them? Or are they just going to take things into their own hands and try and fight off the Assyrians? But Isaiah's message was simple to King Hezekiah and the people of God. The source of true deliverance is the Lord. The source of true deliverance is the Lord. He says, trust the God that you are in a covenant with and see him move his mighty hand. So we come to Isaiah 30, which correlates with 2 Kings 18, and Hezekiah sends for Isaiah. So the king of Judah sends for the prophet to consult with as to what he should do. Do you guys like, I don't feel like a man in life we've ever done these kind of sermons. We're doing a lot of history, aren't we? So I think it's good. We're getting into the Old Testament. Yeah. Joey, we're doing the Old Testament. I told you we'd do the Old Testament. All right. So we come to Isaiah 30. Now, the field commander of the Assyrians is breathing bloody threats against Jerusalem. They're sieging the city, right? And they're saying, you know, mocking God, mocking the people of God. They're saying, surrender, or we will do to you what we did to the northern kingdom of Israel. And and one of the things that this field commander says is, why would you believe that God could deliver you when every other nation has fallen to the mighty Assyrian army? What would make you different? You know, it's a pretty full-on threat. 2 Kings 18.32, the field commander even mimics God, saying if they surrender, that in doing so they will choose life and not death. So... I think we're going to go to Isaiah 30, 15 to 18. God speaks through Isaiah to the people of God and to King Hezekiah. And this is good. Verse 15. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. The Holy One of Israel says, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses, therefore you will flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses, therefore your pursuers will be swift. Verse 18, yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. Isn't that good? And the choice is again contrasted. Isaiah 31, verse 1. Woe to those, says Isaiah, who go down to Egypt for help, 
who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Well, next week we're going to um, see the outcome. I don't want to ruin the story of Hezekiah found in the next bit of Isaiah. But Hezekiah is one of the great kings of Judah. And he chooses to trust God rather than making an alliance or taking things into his own hands. And in one of the great miracles, one of the great signs of the Old Testament, the Assyrian army are destroyed and their king is killed. And the southern kingdom of Judah enjoy a period of renewal and peace. The temple is restored and you have to wait till next week. But here's what we learn from Isaiah. Verse, Isaiah 30, verse 15. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Verse 18, seek help from the Lord. So rather than trusting in alliances, taking things into their own hands for their deliverance, they trusted in their God and they saw him move powerfully to save them. It's a remarkable story and uh, it may have looked wise in their own eyes to make an alliance with the strength of Egypt, but what God required of them was to be dependent on him for their salvation. Now, in one sense, that is a story with a specific circumstance and a specific thing that happens. But I think the word of the Lord is relevant to us today. And I see two things. Uh, Firstly, how often do we as a church or individually seek to do things in our own strength? And it's so easy to do that in the West, isn't it? Because so many of us have had great educations and upbringings. And and it's so easy just to do things, take things into your own hands. And then a lot of that, I think, has to do with just pride. You know, we think, I can do things my own way. I can think my way out of this rather than trusting God's way. We exert our will rather than seeking the Lord's will. And then how often are we compromised by making allegiances with the powers of this world? Now, speaking to the church, where do we make alliances with political parties or corporate interests thinking it will help our cause? Oh, things just got a bit more interesting. Now, on the politic things, I know us preachers are meant to avoid talking about politics, which is why I'd like to talk about politics. (laughs) Now, obviously, it is great when Christians of conviction get involved in democracy and seek to find common grace for all of society. Just two weeks ago, I spoke about William Wilberforce and his role as a Christian politician ending the transatlantic slave trade 200 years ago. So we see Christians in politics do amazing things. But I think what I and many church leaders have become very wary of is Christians becoming overly partisan. Right? Trusting in politics to bring the change that the local church should be seeking to bring. Now, particularly in the US, we've seen this kind of hyper-partisan approach and alliance with the church and political leaders who in many ways do not represent our values. 
And talking to a lot of church leaders over in America, they have seen droves of young people leave the church because of the politicisation of the church and alliances made with corrupt leaders. And it stinks, right? And young people, they, 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 they don't want this, right? They want Jesus. They don't want a political party to represent their views. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. Now, don't hear me wrong. There are wonderful Christian politicians on all sides of politics. I note in New South Wales that both leaders of the major parties are committed Christians. But the problem is we often think that change will come or deliverance will come by making an alliance with the kingdoms of this world. When true change comes, not from seizing power, but by being the local church. You know, there are 12,000 local churches in Australia. I reckon that's enough organisational power to seek the transformation that we want to see in our society. And what we are called to do is to be the hands and feet of Jesus in our communities. We trust God. We seek his righteousness. And we do the work of preaching the good news and making disciples. What change a person's life is rarely tax policy. It may. I don't know. I'm sure it probably has. Changing marginal tax brackets. But what I would suggest is that what really can change a person's life is coming to know the love of God demonstrated in Jesus Christ. So beware trusting in political alliances in order to seek change. You know, the early church went from a small minority that were persecuted to being the religion of the ancient world. And it didn't happen through making deals with the Roman Empire. No, they preached and they prayed for the sick, they cared for the poor, they trusted God in awful circumstances, and eventually they overwhelmed the power of empire, not through sword or by force or by alliance, but through underneath and through within, through being radical lovers of people. And many church historians link the decline of the church in many places to the marriage between the church and the state. Okay? When the church and the state become one, the state wins and the church loses every single time. You know, you go to, you go to Western Europe where people still have to pay taxes to the church and are guaranteed a baptism and so on, and you tell me how alive those churches are. Now, all of this is a nuanced debate and worthy conversation, and I'm sure I've got it wrong. And as I said, I'm not against Christians in politics. I'm not against the church working with the state on things of common grace. But I am against us trusting the powers of this world to deliver or change the world around us. Revivals are very rarely a state-sanctioned event. They come from the people of God on their knees, praying, seeking the Lord, and asking him to move. Oh, Lord, do it again. And we repent, and we rest, and we wait, and we trust in you. I think that raises a good question. What does it mean, then, to trust the Lord? What does it mean that in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength? For Hezekiah, that did mean not making alliances and not doing things in their own strength. 
But instead they chose God. And they depended on His Word, His promises, and then they just waited upon Him. And I don't think that's something that we find easy to do. How much easier to do a little compromise here, or to take a few shortcuts there, or to exert our wills, or to plot and plan to get ahead. But so much of what we are called to do as the people of God is to trust in Him and believe in His promises. See, I know I've been talking a lot about this the last few weeks, but I think a lot of it comes back down to that idea of covenantal faithfulness. To trust God is to believe in His promises and then to do our part in keeping that relationship. Now, that's why marriage becomes such a powerful metaphor for being the children of God. As Christians, we trust that God has saved us by grace from sin. As Christians, we trust God for our lives That his will is perfect and pleasing and leads to life. As Christians, we trust that the truth will set us free and that life and blessing is found in Christ. But then as Christians, trusting God also means doing things his way. Learning obedience. Learning faithfulness. You know, like a marriage, we don't cheat. We stay committed to our God. We don't go seeking after the idols of this world. And faith looks like not bowing down to what all the people in our community around us are bowing down to. All right. Let's shift tact a little bit. As we come into close, that brings us to one of the promises that God does make in Isaiah about future salvation. And we know that's been realized in Jesus, don't we? So as we come to uh, the close of this section of Isaiah, we come to this amazing promise. Having been challenged by who they will trust, reminded that God will deliver them, in Isaiah 35, we again get this remarkable picture of how God will act to save them. So let's have a look. Isaiah 35, verses 3 to 6. So Isaiah says, when God comes to save, verse 3, he will strengthen the feeble hands. He will steady the knees that give way. He will say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. And then the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, the mute tongue will shout for joy, and water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This poem in chapter 35 of Isaiah comes at the end of the Assyrian threat. And it declares the sovereignty of God to move and to heal and to save. And it says that when God does that in history, it will be marked by a time of strengthening and healing and restoration. Now obviously some would have seen this in the people of God's deliverance from the Assyrian threat. But as we know, its ultimate fulfillment is found in Jesus. God who longs to restore and save his people will come once and for all to act in history. So we fast forward 700 years to Jesus. And I want to take you to this amazing scene in Luke 7. Just just keep Isaiah 35 running through your minds. Okay? Now, in the preceding chapters to Luke 7, 
Jesus has declared blessings on the poor and the hungry, woes on the rich and the comfortable. He has healed a paralyzed man. He has raised a widow's son from the dead back to life. And so we pick up at verse 18 of Luke 7. John, John the Baptist that is, his disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord asking, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Now that's a loaded question. Steeped in the expectations of the prophecies of Isaiah 35 about a saviour who would come and who would heal. Right, John the Baptist sends some delegates and he says, we're hearing reports of healing. Are you who Isaiah promised would come or should we expect someone else? Verse 20, when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Hear Jesus. At that time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sickness and evil spirits. He gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus, in relation to the prophecies of Isaiah 35, is saying it is happening and it is me. God's time to save and to heal has come. And it is those who trust the Lord and respond in what? Isaiah, in repentance and rest is your salvation. Your deliverance won't come through compromise, through alliance, through your own strength. It comes through recognizing that God is faithful and trusting him to save. You know, just a little interesting thing to me that this scene in Luke 7 is preceded by what? Anyone? It's the story of the faith of the centurion. There's got to be some links there, right? Now, I don't have time to go into a theology of healing. Uh, you'll have heard me talk about the now and the not yet of the kingdom, how we always need to press into healing, even if we have little faith or have been discouraged. But I just know in the story of the centurion how so many of the themes of Isaiah come to pass. The nations are coming to God's glory. They're coming in faith and trust. They're receiving healing and salvation. See, here is someone from the nations, indeed an imperial officer of the occupying forces in Jerusalem. And in simple trust, that centurion, in simple waiting on the Lord, he believes in Jesus for the healing of his servant. Clearly the time has come. Salvation for all nations, healing for the sick has arrived in Jesus Christ. God has come to save. Let's stop there. I've run out of things to say. <laughs> I want to have some time for ministry. Why don't we stand this morning? Isaiah 30 verse 15. 
This is what the Sovereign Lord says, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength. Blessed are all who wait for Him. Isaiah 35.4, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come, He will come to save you, then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Luke 7.22, Jesus replied to his messengers, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Why don't we just come before the Lord right now?